0: Morning, Grace, Esther, chapter 2. Sometimes we put people in the Bible up on pedestals. And we do this because this is just what we have been taught. It's what we have been heard. What we have heard all of our lives is be like this person, be like that person. Or we put people up on pedestals because... Honestly, we just don't know the Bible that well, so we don't let the other parts of the Bible speak to and paint the background for what's happening in a particular passage. For instance, take the book of Revelation. If you know your Old Testament then you will have a pretty good grip on what's happening in the book of Revelation because of the 404 verses that make up the book of Revelation, 278 of those are allusions to one or more passages in the Old Testament. So if you know your Old Testament and you read the book of Revelation, you say, oh, I see what's happening here. There are these parallels. There's pictures and things happening. Sometimes we just don't know the Bible that well. And that's okay because we're all learning and we're all growing. I'm still learning in my understanding of God's word. There are passages that I interpret differently now than I did 20 years ago. So that's okay. We're we're all learning and we're all growing. But I think we all have this tendency to put the people in the Bible up on pedestals. We begin to see them as the hero of the story, and we fail to come to grips with all of their warts and with all of their weaknesses, or we just kind of sweep them under the rug. And one person in particular that we do this with is Esther. We put Esther on a pedestal, And we fail to look at the backdrop. We fail to take into consideration the law of God. We fail to take into consideration God's law that he gave to his people. So God's law given to the nation of Israel is the backdrop of what is happening in Esther chapter 2. And if we fail to see that, we will come away with the wrong idea about Esther. I know we love Esther, Esther is a rose. But as 80s glam metal band Poison taught us, every rose has its thorn. So we're going to see all of Esther's thorns today. So get ready to be pricked and to bleed a little. What we'll see in our passage today is this. God's grace is big enough to cover your mess. God's grace is big enough to cover our mess. Esther chapter 2 will remind us that no matter what we have done, there is grace. Maybe you have blown it. Maybe you have blown it big time. Maybe you have compromised like Esther does in this chapter. Maybe you've done something that you are so ashamed of that haunts you every single day. Maybe you've done something and it has become your functional identity. I mean, you, you see yourself as the person that did that, said that, etc. So it's your, it's your functional identity. That's how you view yourself. Well, the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is big enough to cover all of your mess. To cover all of your sin. That's what we'll see As we watch Esther absolutely blow it in this chapter. She will compromise. She will hide her faith. She will lie and deceive people. And she will use her good looks to get what she wants. She will use her body to win a beauty contest. And like a groupie, she will spend the night with a pagan king who lives like a rock star. Every rose has its thorn. Look at verse 1 of Esther chapter 2 and hear the word of the Lord. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So after... Ahasuerus kicked Queen Vashti out, which is what we saw last week in chapter 1. His anger has subsided, and now King Ahasuerus remembers Vashti, and he remembers all that happened back in chapter 1, and he starts to miss her, and he regrets drunk texting her and telling her to get lost. And so he's probably feeling sentimental at this point, and he's humming another 80s power ballad, don't know what you got, till it's gone, and he's probably singing, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, and so I picture him listening to a bunch of these like heartbreak power ballads, and he remembers the good times that he had with his wife Vashti, and there's this sense of regret for stripping her of the title queen. Now, as we saw last week, it's still comical, because the king is actually a prisoner of his own laws. He's made a law to get rid of Vashti, and now he misses her, and he can't bring her back because he made the law. He said, she's got to go. So there's still comedy even in this chapter. But this sadness and being sentimental doesn't last long because Ahasuerus' advisors show up, and they tell him what he should do next. Again, this is an indictment on the king and his inability to make big life decisions. They have to tell him what to do next, and here's what they propose. They propose a kingdom-wide beauty pageant to find the next queen. They basically tell him to round up the most beautiful virgins in his entire empire, and then he can sleep with each one of them, and then he can determine who wins the crown, who's the new queen. Now, based on what you know of his character from last week in chapter 1, What do you think Ahasuer said to this advice? Round up all the women, sleep with all of them, and finally decide which one you want. Here's how he probably replied. Absolutely. I like that plan a lot. You guys are getting a raise this year. See, these advisors know the king. They know what he's looking for in a woman. So they tell him the plan. We're going to gather up all the most beautiful virgins in the kingdom. Now, what's interesting is the Hebrew word here for virgins is It gets translated mostly in English as virgins, but it's just the word that refers to a young woman who's at the age of being married. She's at an age where she can be married now. Now, most unmarried women at this point probably were virgins, but it's a possibility that Esther wasn't. Depending on what her life was like at this, you know, as she was younger, it's possible her character is not that great as we're going to see today. So it's at least a possibility. But the idea here is you're rounding up all of the young women who are old enough to be married. Rounding up all of the most beautiful young women who are old enough to be married. Notice that all of these women have to be beautiful. These advisors know the king. They know what's most important to him in a woman. She has to be young, beautiful, and of the age to be married. And the woman that King Ahasuerus ends up choosing, Esther, oh, she is all that and more. Look at verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful Figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So we are now introduced to the two main players in our story, Mordecai and Esther. We get the background of Mordecai's family in verses 5-6. through Mordecai's family, the text tells us, was taken into exile, into Babylon, many years before. In fact, to reinforce the trauma that happened, that his family experienced when they were taken into captivity... The author uses this Hebrew word for carried away three times in one verse, in verse 6. This word gets repeated three times in one verse. Now why? Why is he doing that? Here's why. Because repetition is the hallmark of Hebrew poetry and Hebrew narrative. When an author repeats something, he's drawing your attention to that in order to stress something. And here, the author of Esther is stressing the trauma that Mordecai's family experienced when they were yanked out of Jerusalem and carried away and taken into captivity by the Babylonians. What his family experienced so many years earlier as they were ripped out of their homeland in Jerusalem is highlighted by this word being used three times in one verse. But it also sets us up to question why Mordecai had not returned to Jerusalem. Why was he still in Persia? It has now been 50 years since the exiled Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem, so one wonders why Mordecai had not returned at this point. It was such a traumatic experience for your family to be carted off to Babylon, then the Persians defeat the Babylonians, and now the Babylonians and now you can go back and it's been 50 years Mordecai, why haven't you gone back home? See, this is our first hint at the compromise that has come to characterize God's people that remained in Persia in the post-exilic period. And so Mordecai is raising Esther as his daughter since her parents died. Notice in verse 7, though, that she is identified first by her Hebrew name, Hadassah. After this, she will only be known by her Persian name, Esther. And the author gives us a very important fact about Esther in verse 7. He says this, The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And this is exactly why Esther was taken to Susa to audition to become the new queen. And that's exactly why she'll be chosen as queen. Because she had a beautiful figure And she was lovely to look at. And that's exactly what Ahasuerus was looking for in a wife. So this will be a marriage made in heaven, or Persia. A drunken, womanizing, shallow king who lives like a rock star and a beautiful, shrewd, compromising, semi-religious virgin. It's a perfect match. This has lifelong marriage written all over it, doesn't it? Now, Some people try to argue that because verse 8 says that the other beauty pageant girls were gathered while Esther was taken, that that means that Esther was taken against her will. Some people want to protect Esther from doing the shady things that she does that are described in this chapter. So they make this argument based on these two words. They argue the other girls were gathered, but Esther was taken. However, the same word is used for Esther being taken. It's the same word that's used in verse 15 when it says that Esther was taken by Mordecai to be raised by him. So that kind of taking wasn't a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. The point here is that Esther was not taken against her will. She willingly went along with this. This is another clue that will demonstrate that Esther Is compromising her Jewish upbringing and her Jewish culture. And so Esther arrives in Susa, the citadel, and is put into the custody of Haggai, this man who is in charge of all of the women in the harem. But since all of the women that have been gathered are beautiful, how do you stand out so that you have a shot at becoming the next queen? I mean, the competition is fierce. Here's the answer. You try to get in good with hey guy, the guy in charge. You say, Hey, guy, hey, bro, can you help me? What's your name? And he says, Hey, guy. And this is exactly what Esther does with hey guy. She makes the most of this situation by doing what verse 9 says. Look, it says, She won his favor. Notice that she did not find favor with him, she was not granted favor by the Lord. The text says that she won his favor. There's a difference. She did not passively find favor with Haggai. She actively won his favor. This implies that she was very much active. She put herself in a position to charm him and to blink her eyes and to flip her hair so that she could win his favor. I think you could even make a case that she used her beauty to get What she wanted. Not that women ever do that, do they? Do women ever use their looks to get what they want? Let's move on, shall we? (laughs) Esther won Hagar's favor by using her looks. So this means that Esther did what it took to become queen. She wanted to win this contest. Keep in mind that she is not being shrewd here in order to save the Jews because the Jews are not in danger of experiencing genocide at this point. All of this happens before Haman's plan to kill all of the Jews. Esther is doing everything she can to stand out in a crowd of beautiful women so that she can win the contest. That's why she's being so shrewd here. She wants to be queen. The author is tipping us off to her character at this point in the narrative. She's using her figure and her good looks to win favor. And all of Esther's work pays off. Haggai provides her with the latest and greatest products from Sally Beauty. I mean, this guy Haggai, I picture him like Tim Gunn off the TV show Project Runway, if you've ever seen that. I picture Haggai hey saying, don't forget to make use of the just fab accessory wall. Take advantage of the Sally Beauty Salon. Make it work. That's how I picture this guy, Haggai. Hey He's like Tim Gunn on Project Runway. So Haggai hey provides Esther with cosmetics and the best food. And he even gives her seven assistants. And then he gives her the best place in the harem. And so things are looking up for Esther. But then you get the saddest Heartbreaking editorial comment in verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Mordecai, who visits Esther every day and checks in on her because he works in the government there, and we'll see that next week, he advises her not to reveal her Jewish identity, and Esther obeys him. The author is letting us know that Esther is beginning to adopt her Persian identity and her Jewish identity is fading away. He's telling us that she's continuing down this path of compromise. Esther has no problem using Vidal Sassoon to dye the roots of her hair runway red, but she won't reveal her Jewish roots. She'll make sure she doesn't go out on a date with her roots showing, but she won't show her Jewish roots. Esther is more concerned about concealing the roots on her head than she is about concealing her Jewish roots. Now, lest we throw Esther under the proverbial bus for her compromise, how many times have we compromised our beliefs? How many times have we succumbed to cultural Pressure at work, with family, school. How many times have we succumbed to cultural pressure? Throughout history, God's people have always struggled with this. We live with this tension. Are we going to be faithful as the people of God, shining forth the light of the gospel in our culture, or are we going to capitulate to cultural pressures? This is not new, Grace, and we see this happening in our culture today, don't we? Christians are being sued for what they believe. It's not new grace. Welcome to life as a Christian in a fallen world. We all compromise in big or small ways. But the good news of the gospel is this. This is what we believe. God's grace is big enough to cover our mess. We all compromise in big or little ways. We've all blown it in some way. As we saw last week, we were always trying to build up these little kingdoms of self where we are the king or the queen of our kingdom. We're the most important thing the most important person. We get our way. We all look to other things that we saw last week. We all look to other things to bring us satisfaction. All of us at times forget who we are in Christ, that we are in union with Christ. And when we forget that, we start to experience heart drift. And we end up being shaped and molded by the world rather than God's word. But the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is big enough to cover our mess. And in our day and culture, think about how hard it is to be a faithful witness to Christ. And if you think it's hard right now for us, wait until you see the pickle that Esther gets herself in. Look at verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So here's how the beauty pageant worked in Persia. After spending 12 months getting pampered with pedicures and manicures and back rubs and facial scrubs and scalp massages and placing pieces of cucumbers over their eyes and getting the total spa treatment, after 12 months of that the girl would be sent in to see the king. And she gets to wear whatever she wants when she goes in to see the king. Jewelry, she can put on perfume, makeup, new clothes, outfits from Victoria's Secret, you name it. And then she goes in to see the king. Now what's interesting here is Four times the author will use this phrase, this Hebrew phrase, Boel, which means to go in, to go into. Four times he uses this phrase in verse 12, 13, and two times in verse 14 to describe what happens when the girls would go in to see the king. This phrase, Boel, It's a Hebrew phrase that's a common euphemism for sexual intercourse. It's used all over the Old Testament. It's used of Abraham when he was with Hagar. It's used of Boaz and and Ruth. It's used of David and Bathsheba, to name a few of the famous people. And so by repeating this Hebrew phrase four times, Boel, to go into, the author is letting us know what Esther will be doing when she goes in to see the king. He's telling us that she is no innocent bystander. She knows what happens when her name is called for her to go into the king. She knows what she is to do when she goes in to see the king. She's met the first requirement, be beautiful, have a lovely figure. And the second thing that she's supposed to do, her goal is to please him. I think you all know what I'm talking about. So a girl would spend a year preparing, and then she would go to the king. And she would go into his bedroom, and she would try her best to convince the king that she should be queen. And you know what's happening here, right? You know what I mean when I'd say she would try her best to convince the king that she should be the queen? Let's leave the door closed. I think we all know what's happening. And then in the morning, the girl leaves, and she returns to the harem, which is run by a guy named Shaashgaz. There's a baby name for you, Shaashgaz. And after your night with the king, Shaashgaz takes care of you until when or if the king ever wants to see you again. And the king may never call you again for the rest of your life, and you have to live this pointless life in the harem, just waiting, is he ever going to call me again? And so night after night this process goes on until the king who's really living like a rock star here until he decides which of these girls he likes the best. And he happens to fall for a pretty nice girl who won't tell people about her Jewish upbringing but has no problem using her looks to get what she wants. Look at verse 12. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, The king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. And so Esther spends a year getting ready for this date. Remember that, men, the next time your wife is taking too long to get ready, Esther spent a year getting ready for this date. And then she takes the fashion advice of Haggai, the Tim Gunn Project Runway guy, and Haggai's advice works. As verse 15 states, Esther is winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Don't miss that clue. Esther is winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. In other words, her good looks are getting her places. The time spent in the gym, the time spent at the spa, the time spent in front of the mirror, they're all paying off for her. People see her and she wins them over because she had a great figure and was lovely to look at. And so the day finally arrives for Esther to go spend the night with King Ahasuerus. And when I say finally, I mean that it has been four years now at this point in the story, four years since Vashti was removed as queen. Verse 16 tells us that Esther's date with the king occurred during the seventh year of his reign. And the events that we saw last week in chapter 1, they occurred during the third year of his reign. That's when Vashti got the boot. So it's been four years since Vashti got the boot. And it has been at least a year, the last year of those four years, Esther started prepping herself physically for this night. And it's even possible that over 1,000 women have passed through the king's bedroom by this point. And now it's Esther's turn to audition. You can't help but notice the contrast here between Queen Vashti and Esther. Queen Vashti refused to be a sex object for the king while Esther seemed too willing to do so. Queen Vashti, remember in chapter one, said, I will not be paraded before your drunken friends for them to gawk at my figure. And yet Esther willingly goes in. Again, I believe it's a further indictment on her character. Though she is failing spiritually, Esther emerges victorious the next morning. Her night with the king was a success in the world's eyes, the king was pleased with Esther. She won him over with her looks and what transpired that evening. She won grace and favor in his sight, the text says. So the king was pleased with her. In fact, the author seems to pile up all of these words in verses 17 and 18 to get the point across. He says, the king loved Esther more than all the women. Loved. This was a one-night stand. You don't love somebody after a one-night stand. I think the idea is here. He's like a teenager. He's like, I just loved them. We've been dating for two days and I love them. You don't love them. You're infatuated at best. Blind, definitely. He loved Esther. You're, you're supposed to read that and be like, okay, this guy is so shallow. This is comical. And she won, the verse verse 17 and 18 says, she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, who aren't virgins at this point, so that's why that word means a woman who's young and able to be married, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast. In other words, she made an impact on the king that night. So much so, he lowered taxes that year. And he gave out gifts like Santa Claus, the text says. He's just a rock star who is blowing through his royalty checks, pun intended. And so the day finally arrived for Ahasuerus, after thousands of girls came and went, he found a new queen. A queen who concealed her true identity in order to acquire a new one. We must pause at this point and think about What just happened? All of this happened in Persia. And the two main characters are Jews. They're Israelites. Jews who are supposed to be living as faithful stewards of, faithful servants of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. Even if they had not returned home to Jerusalem which you would at least expect by this point, especially when the author tells us three times of how traumatic it was for Mordecai's family to be yanked out of their homeland, even if they haven't returned home to Jerusalem by this point, you still expect them to live faithfully because they are called as God's people to live faithfully in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Sadly, Mordecai and Esther... We're not maintaining their Jewish identity. Esther hides. She conceals her true identity. She deceives people. So I think it's a fair assumption to say that she probably doesn't maintain the strict kosher diet that was regulated in God's law, in God's word. I think it's safe to say that she probably doesn't keep the Sabbath. In fact, Esther marries a pagan king So we know she ignored that part of God's law, which said Jews are not allowed to marry foreigners. And if you want to know how serious Jews were in the post-exilic period in this time period, how serious they were about marrying foreigners, just turn your Bible back one page to Nehemiah 13. What does Nehemiah do when he hears that some Israelites married foreigners and that they don't even know the Hebrew language? They're so immersed in those cultures What does Nehemiah do? He confronted them. He cursed them. He beat some of them up. And then he pulled out their hair. Can you imagine a pastor showing up at your house, calling you out on your sin, beating you up, and then pulling your hair out? Well, that's what Nehemiah did when those Israelites in his day had married foreign women. I don't think Nehemiah would like what Esther does in Esther chapter 2. Nehemiah is not going to be guilty of putting Esther up on a pedestal. Now, I understand that this can be uncomfortable because many people have tried to soften the blow here and to present Esther in a better light. I understand that many people have tried to alleviate the discomfort of having the hero of this story be involved in such immoral behavior we kind of sweep it under the rug i understand that many books and commentaries and sermons have been present have presented esther in a positive light she has been presented to us as a rose but she has thorns so i understand how it might sting to get pricked And to hear that someone who has been elevated as a hero is not really a great role model after all. She's just a supermodel who used her looks to get what she wanted. But Esther made this decision. She could have stood up for her beliefs. She She could have said, I am not going in to sleep with that sleazy, drunken, pagan king. And if you want to kill me, then kill me not doing that. She made this decision. So it appears at this point in her life, her beliefs were not a crucial part of her life. There has been compromise on her part. Now, compare Esther to another person who faced the same opportunity to compromise in the same Persian empire. His name is Daniel what does Daniel chapter 1 verses 8 through 9 tell us? Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Notice that Daniel did not actively win favor here. He's not scheming like Esther. God gave him or granted him favor because he wanted to be faithful to God's word. Daniel turned down the delicacies of the king's court to remain faithful to God's law, to remain faithful to his identity as a servant of Yahweh. He chose to be thrown into the lion's den than to compromise and quit praying. He didn't compromise, just like his three friends who would be thrown into a burning furnace rather than bow down to a king. As Ian DeGuid says, if someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. Esther did not do this. She could have. She, she, She could have said, I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite. I'm not going to do that horrendous thing. Are you kidding? That guy's sick. In fact, the author tells us one more time to make his point, to stress again, she concealed her identity. She deceived people. He repeats the same phrase to stress that Esther is not acting like she should as a follower of Yahweh. Look at verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as, she, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, The men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now we find out something here that will come into play later in chapter 6. Mordecai is at the king's gate. That's where he works. And he overhears this assassination plot by these two thugs, Big Thana and Teresh. They're angry with the king and they want to kill him. So Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells King Ahasuerus, there's an investigation, and then the two thugs are killed on some gallows. Now, a quick word about the gallows. These are not gallows that we're used to seeing with ropes, and then the floor drops out. These are actually stakes or poles that people would be impaled on. So Big Thana and Teresh get impaled, and it all gets recorded in the Chronicles of the King. That Mordecai helped uncover this assassination plot. And then all of that sets up the background for the turning point that we'll see in chapter six. We'll talk more about that then. But for now, I want to highlight verse 20 because I think that's what the author of Esther wants us to see because he highlights again, he points out Esther's compromise. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Once again, we get a note about her character. Esther will not even reveal her true identity to her new husband. Esther may be obeying Mordecai, but she's disobeying God think about this, because I've heard the argument, but she's obeying Mordecai, who is her adoptive father. She should obey her dad. Yes, she is obeying her father, Mordecai, which is biblical and which is commanded in God's law. It's one of the Ten Commandments. That's how important it is. But make no mistake about it. She is disobeying God. God does not want you to obey your parents if they tell you to do something that goes against God's word. Your first allegiance is to God. And Esther's first allegiance was to Yahweh. And his law forbade the Jews from marrying foreigners, not to mention spending the night with a man and not knowing if he's going to marry you in the morning, right? I mean, is don't we believe this? You shouldn't sleep together before marriage? Are we going to let Esther off the hook here? She knows that, right? Tell me. I need some affirmation. It's wrong to sleep with somebody before marriage, right? Okay? Even the night before it's wrong till you're married. Don't let the devil trick you into thinking that fornication and sexual immorality are God-pleasing activities. Tell me, would you give this advice to a teenage girl in this church? Say there's two families here in church, both love the Lord, both are involved, and that teenage girl comes to you and says, my parents want me to go against God's word, what should I do? What would you tell them? You have to disobey your parents so that you obey God's word. Word. The hard truth, the bitter pill that we must swallow is this. The plain reading of the text reveals that Esther compromised, and we have to come to grips with that, however disappointing it may be. She fornicated with a sleazy pagan. King. She had a one-night stand and was not guaranteed that this guy was going to marry her in the morning. She had no guarantee at all of that. But don't be discouraged, Grace. The Bible is full of people who blow it. The problem is that we have set up these people on pedestals. We've set them up to be heroes when there is only one hero that emerges when you read scripture and his name is Jesus. And he came precisely because there are no good people in the Bible, in this world, or here's a secret, in this church. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus came because there are no good people in the Bible, in this world, or even in this church. Here's the big idea that comes out of Esther chapter 2, that comes out of Esther's big mistake God's grace is big enough to cover our mess. God's grace is big enough to cover our sin, big enough to cover our rebellion. It's big enough to cover Esther's mess and it will. We'll see that as the story unfolds. We see this all the way through the Bible. God's people repeatedly fail. They sin, they rebel, they compromise just like Esther does in chapter 2. Look, you don't want your daughters to grow up and be like Esther in chapter 2. She compromised and yet God amazingly continues to use people like us to further his kingdom and his purposes in this world understand this grace redeeming hopeless messy situations is god's specialty redeeming hopeless messy crazy family situations is god's specialty This is what he does best, and the book of Esther shows us that. You get to the end, and you discover that God providentially and graciously used Esther's mess for his redemptive purposes. Oh, God's hidden. We saw that in the introduction to this book. God is hidden in this story. But he is present, even though he is most absent. This is not just good news that was limited to the 480s B.C. in the Persian Empire. This is good news for us today. How often have we compromised because we did not want to suffer the consequences of being salt and light in our culture, with our families, workplaces, neighborhoods, school? How many times have we sought our identity in the things of this world instead of remembering that we have been united to Christ by faith? We've all done it plenty, haven't we? And yet the good news of the gospel is that God is able to take our mess, to take our failures, to take our compromises, and to take even our sin and use them for his redemptive purposes. Our mess is the raw material that God uses to bring about redemption. And to see that in its fullness, we need look no further than the cross, The cross demonstrates that nothing is unredeemable. The gospel is the good news that God can redeem anything and anyone for his glory. The book of Esther shows us that God can redeem our past, whatever it includes. Maybe your past involves some immorality of some sort. God can redeem that. God's grace is bigger than that one night, God's grace is bigger than a one night stand. Bigger than one mess up, bigger than rebellion, bigger than sin, bigger than one failure, bigger than how foolish we might have been in one moment that still haunts us every single day. God's grace is bigger than that one decision that changed your life forever. His grace is bigger, bigger than any of our sin. Even the most horrendous and embarrassing thing that you could do, whatever that is, Whatever it is that you have done, it can be redeemed for His purposes and for His glory. That's the God that we serve. Isn't He amazing? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, our Redeemer, never compromised. He never sinned, not even once. He lived the perfect life in full obedience to God's law that God requires and expects of every one of us. He did that for us lived a perfect life he died a perfect death he died in our place we deserve to die because of all of our sin rebellion compromise mess failure and god raised him from the dead and he's coming again that's the gospel and as we saw in the book of hebrews he is not ashamed to call us brothers christian jesus is not ashamed of you he's not ashamed of what you've done he's not ashamed of you Caspar Olivianus, a theologian who lived in the 1500s, said this, I believe, I say, that through faith by which I am and remain engrafted into Christ, all of that sin, all of his sin that he's done, is forgiven me by the gracious goodness of God. God does this in such a way that he erases all memory of both guilt and punishment, just as if I had never sinned or had no sin. Listen, if you have been engrafted into Christ, this is true of you. And if you haven't, I beg you today, repent. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sins and flee to Jesus. Be forgiven. Be adopted into God's family. Be engrafted into Christ. Will you receive today the free offer of salvation? For those of us who have, for those of us who are Christians, For those of us who are like the many in the scriptures who failed and compromised. For those of us who have done what Esther did. Hear the gospel again this morning as we close. He erases all memory of both your guilt and your punishment. Just as if you had never sinned or had no sin. Believe that today. His grace is big enough to cover your mess. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are an amazing God who loved us so much. You sent your son to live and die for us. You raised him from the dead. He's coming again. That's the gospel. We believe it. We hold on to it. It's our hope. It's our everything. We admit, Father, we've been exposed by your word, by your law this morning to be sinners People who compromise. People who love sin sometimes when we should be loving you. People who give in. Don't resist and don't fight. We're like Esther. Maybe not exactly doing what she did, but we've done it in many ways. And we ask you to forgive us. And then we thank you for Jesus. He's the true hero that we see emerge out of Esther chapter 2. He never sinned one time even though he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin what beautiful words that describe your son father yet without sin and he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness and that's good news by the power of the holy spirit this morning father would you rub the gospel down into our pores for our joy and for your glory in jesus name amen